This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Good morning. Well, this week, the Irish Cancer Society scored a bit of a known goal when they cancelled and then partially uncancelled their hardship fund. It's money given to families of cancer patients to help out with everything from car parking fees to accommodation and maybe extra services that aren't part of the standard cancer care. But are charities doing the work of government? Or is there a point where state health care has to end and it is appropriate for charity to step in? In studio, Donald Buggy is from the Irish Cancer Society, Cormac Lucy is a columnist with the Sunday Times and chairman of the Hibernia Forum Think Tank. Ivan Cooper is director of advocacy at The Wheel, an umbrella group for non-profit organisations. And on the line is Senator Colin Burke, Fine Gael's Shannon spokesperson on health. And we're live today, so let us know if you think charities are doing the work of the state or when it's unrealistic for the state to pay for everything, that there is a space for charities to do more. 53106 for your text for 30 cent and at Talking Point NT for tweets. And to Today we're delighted to bring you Emma Donoghue's musical Heirlooms. The author was nominated for an Oscar this week, so we thought we'd drag it out of the archives for you. That's at 10 to 10. Well, Donald Buggy, I will start with you. Now, we won't go over too much of this week. What's done is done and has been undone to the best extent that you can. But I wondered about the motive in making a dramatic cut like that, as opposed to the famous kind of salami slicing that maybe other people do. Were you trying to make a point in advance of Daffodil Day that you needed more funds or were you trying to make maybe a political point in advance of the election that you were doing work that maybe the government should be doing? Not at all. I think, you know, um, we have been accused of being uh, Machiavellian in some ways this week and of of being trying to influence the political system and, and trying to influence the general public and, and, and trying to... Um, to play on the heartstrings of of the Irish population. But we really, the decision came from the fact that we took in one and a half million euro less in 2015 than we spent. And all of our our income is fundraised. We don't get money from the state. uh, Just over 1% of our income comes from the state. And we were looking at a fund which had grown by threefold um, from 2007 from half a million euro to one and a half million euro and was projected to grow right into the future given the increasing number of cases of cancer and we felt that the time was right really to to change direction as to how we approached the issue of the cost of cancer. We had produced a report in October which showed that the average monthly cost of a cancer diagnosis is 850 euro. And how does, what amounts to that cost? Is that the medical care or drops in income or how do you calculate yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it's calculated based on, on, on drops in income. It's based on transportation costs to hospital parking charges, uh, eating out of home, accommodation if you have to travel long distances. It's also heating your home. You, you know, if you're getting treated for, for chemotherapy and many cancer therapies, you require um, additional heat and power in your house. And, and um when we looked at our grant, uh, which was a maximum of 500 euro, we felt <laughs> that it really was a, um, and not to diminish the, the importance of it and the value that it gave to people, we really felt that we, uh, in order to get 
greater value and greater f- support for cancer patients, we had to take a different direction. Um, Senator Colin Burke, um, you see, there's no doubt about it. When you get cancer, um, the, the drugs and the hospital treatment are in one sense only the start of it. And all these other costs come into play that make everything so much worse. Where do you think the government needs to draw the line in terms of what it's willing to pay for? Well, I think we shouldn't be drawing any line in relation to what we should pay for. Wherever we can give support, we should be trying to do that. Um, I suppose the big problem you have in relation to any um, government-funded programme, there are criteria set out, and I suppose the typical example is in relation to medical cards, where you know there are clear uh, criteria set out about qualifying for a medical card, but then there are people who have very difficult medical circumstances and they should get a medical card and that's why we have the thing called a discretionary medical card. Um, likewise in relation to care for people with cancer and I suppose, I suppose my own experience myself is that I was I had a major health problem going back a long number of years ago. I was self-employed and suddenly I had no income for quite a long period of time. So I'm quite aware of the difficulties that people run into. I suppose our problem in relation to funding in healthcare at the moment is that, you know, we have a budget of over 13 billion. Uh, 3.25 billion of that goes to 2,600 organisations. And that includes the voluntary hospitals plus organisations like, say, for instance, you take Cope and Cork, which has over 1,200 people in residential care, um, has another 1,300 people that it looks after in daycare, and their budget is over 50 million per annum. So out of the budget of over 13 billion, uh, 3.25 billion goes to 2,600 organisations. And therefore, there's a lot of organisations who are providing um, care and uh, and health um, services um, that wouldn't otherwise be provided. And that's how the structure has developed. In relation to the this issue in relation to support for families, I think it's extremely important that that support is there. I think it's already been outlined the kind of costs that are not available in any um, system at the moment and it's obviously something that should be looked at to give support to families and especially for instance you have a family say that's travelling long distances to go to either Cork or Dublin or wherever for treatment there's the cost of travel there's the cost of overnight stay there's the cost of meals and all that issue that there isn't really any um, and who do you think should bear that cost? Should that be the state? Should that be a non-profit organisation? Or is that just something that the patients have to put up with, that it's just part well, of the cost uh, and the bad, rotten look of being sick? I think, it, in fairness, I think the, the health services should be giving that support. But even if you set out um, you know, conditions for giving that or the criteria for qualifying for that support, you'll still find there are people who will not fit into the qualifying criteria. And that's where, I suppose, chargeable organisations come in because they're able to, uh, I suppose, bend the rules and change the rules in order to facilitate the patient. And sometimes you can set out uh, the criteria and people tick all the boxes, but unfortunately they don't tick all the right boxes in relation to qualifying for for, for, for the support. And that's where, I suppose, charities like the Irish Cancer Society provide a vital role in giving that extra little bit of support. And I think in fairness to the Cancer Society, they've given a full explanation of what has occurred and why they have uh, these adjustments have to be made. And I think, you know, the state now needs to look at this and the health services now need to look at this. 
Okay, so Ivan Cooper, you're from the Wheel, so you would be working with lots of different kinds of non-profit organisations. Are there times when a small non-profit organisation, like Colin was saying, is just more nimble and is actually better placed to provide solutions to some problems than a government? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the advantages, you know, we, we have a, a piecemeal, um, I suppose, social and, and, and health and community kind of a, 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 a set of services that have evolved over uh, decades, really, in a kind of a not really a very strategic way. Uh, we didn't have a be- post-war beverage report here in Ireland. We didn't have a national health service. So, you know, we've had uh, a, an evolved tapestry, a patchwork of service providing organisations that have grown. And there are advantages and disadvantages to that. So the disadvantage is that we don't have as strategically integrated a service as we could have. Uh, the good news is that that's kind of changing. You know, the uh, the, the HSE have a, a kind of a, a, a commissioning process underway. Tusla, the Child and Family Agency, have a similar process underway to bring some uh, rationality and coherence uh, and integration uh, to the service provision uh, that's out there. Uh, but one of the advantages of the, uh, the, the the kind of way that social and health and community services have evolved in the Irish context is that they are kind of anchored in communities through, through the voluntary organisations that are providing them. They have voluntary boards that offer and consist of representatives of, of parents or service users or, or uh, beneficiaries who are involved in, in the governance of the organisations and that brings a certain sensitivity or person-centredness to the services generally. They're not all perfect uh, by any manner of means but it means that the services have some kind of an intuitive connection to the people or communities they're serving and it seems to us that the challenge is to try to preserve that benefit of, of services being anchored in communities and, and responsive to people's needs and, and the flexibility and innovation that, that that not being bureaucratically tied into the system gives okay, to enable more flexible solutions to be, be devised at local level. And also, people who work in voluntary organisations generally speaking are very intrinsically motivated. Okay, they, they, like The evidence is there from the salary surveys that have been recently conducted in, in, in the sector that uh, people who work in the community in the voluntary sector uh, are by and large paid less uh, than people who work in the private sector and that's you know demonstrated it's it's proven so just making the point that yeah. people who are working there are intrinsically motivated to do it they're, they they make they go the extra mile to make the service a personal one and so the challenge is how can we do that sarah how can we continue to benefit from more strategically coherent services on the one hand but at the same time maintain the flexibility and innovation well how kind of, well that's the challenge yeah uh, that that is the, the the challenge that we're all trying to grapple with and the, in fairness that the commissioning process is underway in HSE and Tusla we in the wheel and others are feeding into those to make sure that when they do make this move to more strategically integrated services it's not a blunt approach that the flexibility and innovation is allowed for and voluntary organizations continue to play a role in that yeah, you see, Cormac, it is a tricky one. Like, I really recognise what Ivan is saying about the vitality of the voluntary sector, that when communities do things for themselves, it can often be much more powerful and empowering and efficient than if you're just sitting around waiting on the government to do something for you. But how then do you stop people doing things voluntarily that by rights the government should be doing? Well, you, you started this programme with the question, uh, are charities doing the work of government? Yes. You could equally well invert the question and ask, is government doing the job of charities? Because a hundred years ago, 
we would have had a, a health system that was essentially run by charities. And what we've seen over the last century has been uh, an expand, an inflation in the reach of government, where government now seeks to solve every problem. And we have to ask ourselves, is it more efficient for us to fix problems via government, by setting up agencies, by putting people on payrolls, by giving them big salaries, or will we do better with a more flexible charity-based approach you know, at the margins? I'm not saying we, we end government and go yes. back 100 years, but what I'm <coughs> saying is at the margins, who will do this job better? And, you know, I'm, I'm a chartered accountant. I look at finance. If we look at the area of financial protection, you know, we have a financial regulator really didn't do very much to stop the crash. And yet there are still people there on big, big salaries, big, big pensions. And one of the big advantages I see to the charities is they don't come with huge permanent overheads. And by and large, the people working in charities, their primary motive is not one of self-service. So if you look at the central bank, the financial regulator, uh, in the very weak bank guarantee was given in 2008, there was a huge transfer of funds to the central bank to fill a hole in their pension fund. I don't think you'd see charities behaving like that. So I, I, I would be very much on, on the view that the, the, I prefer to see government aiming to do less rather than more right. and, and ever more. Sure. Like the, flooding, the recent flooding example is another uh, case in point where the, the government cannot admit that there might be a problem that it shouldn't fix. Senator Colin Burke. Yeah, one of the problems that's after arising, though, in relation to, and I, I've referred to the fact that about 2,600 organisations get funding from the HSC, I do think that there, uh, over, and I suppose especially in the boom time, there there was a, a situation arose where the salaries did rise quite substantially within some organisations, and just a very small few now, not, not a major number. And also the whole issue about pensions has been an issue. And we've seen this in one of the other organisations recently, in the IFA, for instance, where it went beyond, I mm. suppose, what people were expecting. That has happened in, in a number of organisations. And the problem now that has arisen, and this arose over two years ago where the HSE started looking at this, and now I think the restrictions that are being put on are too tight. For instance, I know of one organisation where the turnover is over 50 million per annum. They have over 100,000 staff. And yet the HSE are now dictating what the salary of the chief executive should be. And I will say to you that they will not even get people to apply for the job on the basis of what is available on salary. So, you know, we're, we're now gone overboard in relation to much restriction in that area and that we haven't left some discretion with the organisation. Because in fairness, uh, as the other contributors have said, charities have provided a superb service at a minimal cost in real terms and have got really good value for money. And I suppose that really applies as well. For instance, you take the whole area of sport. We give out, say, 40 million this year in sports grants. I would reckon that every voluntary sports organisation is putting in for every euro they get, the average organisation is putting in another five euros themselves. Likewise with the charities. Yeah, but, but every, for every bit of support they get, they're also putting in more funding that they're raising themselves. Yeah, well. but then, I, you know, Tom Clonan, you know, the defence uh, commentator, and he's running for the Trinity Senate, and he was talking recently about his son who has various significant medical needs. And he was making the point that many other people in that situation have made is that the disabled <coughs> have to fight every day really for what should be given to them by rights. And they need um, organisations and charities to keep them going 
when they think that is stuff that the government should just be given to them without a fight. Like, do you not think that maybe it's gone too far in, in terms of outsourcing? No, I think in fairness to you, you look at a lot of the services that have developed in this country, they've developed it because there have been organisations like the Irish Council Society and a whole lot of other organisations who've gone in and fought the corner that needed to be fought in relation to the improvement in services, in relation to the backup support. But as I said earlier, you know, you can put all the supports in place you want to, but there are still people who will fall out of the loop because they're not satisfying all the criteria and that's where the voluntary organisations come into okay, play. Okay, so Donald Buggy, I mean, do you think we're doing too much? I, I think the challenge for us in, in certainly in the Irish Cancer Society is that we have developed services on a voluntary basis through fundraise money like our night nursing service. And that seems to be your outstanding service, I have to say. And, you know, that, that service allows two and a half thousand people to die at home with dignity every year. But it has become a, I, I guess it has become a service which is relied upon by people. It has become a service which is part of the state infrastructure without being part of the state infrastructure, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, it, it's something that when you when you have the when you have a service like that which has grown over the years to the size it has grown um the the challenge is the transition of that into into state services because it there comes a point where it's no longer appropriate for uh, charities to yeah. deliver on that scale we need to be you know to ivan's point around the, the flexibility the innovation uh, we need to stay in that space we need to identify where there are service deficits we need to propose solutions with proper research and analysis around those. And if we can prove that those solutions are more effective and more efficient than what's already in place, then we can change the system. We can we can transition those services into uh, government uh, government funded services. Right, but Ivan Cooper, I often wonder, you know, a little bit like, say, <coughs> the tax exiles, <coughs> excuse me, please, who um, will, you know, so they're not residents, they're not paying money here, um, or a little bit of it anyway, but they give loads of money to charity, you know, um, so they feel that they're doing something for the country and maybe there's a bit of psychological appeasement as well. <coughs> On a broader scale amongst the general population and this, this, this debate about are we a low tax or high tax economy, I often feel that most Irish people are happy to pay lower taxes and then top up for private services when they need them. And that part of that is if someone in their family dies from cancer and they have the night nurse, they'll do a fundraiser afterwards and everybody give to the Irish Cancer Society and they feel they know exactly where their euro is going. Whereas if they paid for that in taxes for a wider, broader, deeper health service, they'd feel it was just being lost and they wouldn't know where it was going. Do you know what I mean? Well, I know what you're describing, but, uh, you know, the question is, why is that the case? Um, I mean, if we look again at the United Kingdom context where they have a national health service, uh, they have people have a right to services. So, I mean, I'd kind of come back and I suppose challenge uh, Cormac's point there in relation to, you know, is the is the state doing the work the charity should be doing? Uh, the, the issue here is that we really do need to start off with a sense of uh, what kind of a, a, a society do we want to live in and then how are we going to pay for that and, and, and what's the appropriate tax take for that. So, I mean, it is indisputable. We do live in a, it's in, in a society in Ireland where the tax take, the overall tax take as a proportion of GDP, uh, is, is low uh, by uh, European standards. And, but is and, that what yeah, people want? Well, I don't think it is what people want. I think people want good quality 
quality public services. Uh, remember that not everybody can afford to pay for private health insurance. So not everybody can, can afford to pay uh, top up fees for schools, this, that or the other. Why do we have a circumstance where we have? And what that means is that we have an unequal society in Ireland where many people can't get services that they should have uh, a right to get, where we have the, the cancer society, for example. And look at St. Vincent de Paul every year. They, they spend a visit around 40 million euro a year uh, providing uh, people and families with additional um, um, financial supports and other kinds of supports in relation to meeting everyday expenses. And we have to ask ourselves, like, why is this? So I would simply make the point that charities have a role to play in relation to innovating and being flexible and, of course, in relation to providing person-centred services that are often procured by the state or outsourced by the state to these organisations to deliver. So just Sarah, there's one important point here. Half of the money uh, we've talked about, we've heard Colin talk about these numbers of organisations, you know, two and a half thousand funded by the HSE. There's 5.7 billion being turned over by somewhere in the region of eight and a half thousand charitable organisations in Ireland today. There's a hundred thousand people working for those organisations doing professional jobs, okay? They are a core component of the way we deliver public services in Ireland today. But half of the funds that's spent by all of those organisations are earned or fundraised or generated (coughs) in some sort of a commercial way. So the question then is, why is it we have this particular approach to doing public services in Ireland that means that people, for some reason, end up reliant on organisations securing those funds to have services that I think any reasonable person would argue should be available to them. Cormac, I think the answer to that question is because the church did so much of the work for so long. We just got used to it. I think that's part of the uh, legacy of the health service. But uh, the, the Central Statistics Office recently changed the way it measured health spending to bring it into line with international practices so that we would generate health spending statistics comparable with other countries. And what they found was that relative to gross national income, Ireland has the second highest level of health spending on the planet. Right. Beaten only by the United States. And there is a chronic uh, inefficiency problem in the management of the health services. And they get away with this by pleading for resources. And they have a, there are many people in the media commenting on health issues who are accomplices in this, who know the facts, but focus on this resource problem or that resource problem, rather than putting the problem back onto health service management, who have more resources for a relatively younger population than pretty much any country so in the developed is world. Is that what, and I have to take a break quickly, and Colm, I know you want to get in, I'll come back to you after this break, but just want to put this point again to Cormac. So is, is that fact that which would incline you towards saying the non-profit, private slash charity sector is better doing this work? Well, I think there, there's a role for both. But what I'm saying is, uh, I think the health services, yeah. the government end of it, is very poorly managed. Now, now I, I, I put one big caveat on that. Uh, the fact that Donal said at the start of this programme that the numbers suffering cancer is rising, that is a, a curious reflection on improving health. Yes. Th- th- there are fewer people uh, suffering 
you know, more and more people are being cured of other illnesses, which means they live longer and are more likely to suffer cancer. Yes. So in a curious way, it's a symptom that the system is working. Okay. And on that note, I have to take a quick break and we'll be back with more after these. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about charities and the state and where should you draw the line between state healthcare and charity. And in studio is Donald Buggy from the Irish Cancer Society, Cormac Lucy is economist with the Sunday Times and chairman of the Hibernian Forum, Ivan Cooper is director of advocacy at the Wheel, an umbrella group for non-profit organisations, and Finnegale Senator Colin Burke is on the line. You can text us 53106 for 30 cent and at Talking Point NT for tweets. And we were just saying in the ad break that illness is the biggest cause of bankruptcy in America, which is awful. Now, a few of your texts. Ben and Kilmainham says, Sarah, can you please ask your guest why the Irish Cancer Society requires a head office in Dublin 4 worth in excess of 10 million euros in a time of stretched funds. <clears throat> Maraid says most of these charities get partially funded from the state. I think there's a thing called Section 39, isn't yeah. it, Ivan? Yeah. yeah, that's why they can have big salaries, nice offices, etc. There is a fine line between state agencies and charities. The difference is charities can fundraise to supplement their income. Jerry says people have to live for a whole year on the cut that the overpaid CEO of Charity Cancer Ireland took. That's John McCormick, your CEO. What, he went from 145 to 135. 135. Yeah. Um, and there are 39 homeless charities in Dublin alone. Surely this is not efficient. And that's an exact point we want to come to shortly. And then Mary Morrissey called in from Clare. She started a daycare centre in 1994. 250 people are catered for each week. She said they are keeping people out of hospital and saving the government money. But she says she can't uh, get funding. So Donald buggy on that issue of we call it the corporatization uh, maybe a kinder word is professionalization of charities but you've got a nice head office your ceo is on a big salary yeah well the society has existed in ballsbridge for over 40 years and um through the through the donations of uh, and support of the irish population we have maintained the headquarters in in ballsbridge um it is not something that we have an annual rent on. It's it's something that is owned by the society for the people of Ireland. Um, we have looked at our location there to see if it is appropriate that we might move to an alternative location. But one of the important things for for the services that we deliver for our volunteers is access. And um, it's appropriate for us to have a, a city centre location in order that we can continue to deliver the services we deliver that we can continue to connect with our volunteers and they can easily access us Um, it's important also to say that the society receives uh, just about one percent in state funding Um, we are uh, totally voluntary funded from the from the irish population and and i think it's it's uh, it has been very effective when you consider that that cancer has its own uh on the salaries when i saw the ifa thing i was wondering about how the psychology of that arose and i thought it might be because the head of the ifa is going in and he's dealing with ministers top civil servants over to brussels commissioners leaders of the world and he's at the same table as them so he sees himself as their equal and therefore he should be on the same money as them is that the kind of thing maybe going on with charities? Like you'd have a big turnover, so therefore why shouldn't I be paid as much as a business that has a big turnover? 
Well, the reason why the Irish Cancer Society has a big turnover is that it <coughs> has improved and increased over the last 20, 30 years to the point where it has that turnover and that required professionalism, it required expertise, it required people at the top of the organisation who are able to bring the organisation forward. In, in 1996, when we had our first cancer strategy, our, uh, our survival rates for cancer were some of the worst in Europe. And the Irish Cancer Society has really worked hard and uh, supported the centralisation of services, really advocated for the development of the National Cancer Control Programme. And Program. you put a lot of money into research as well. Yeah. We yeah. do indeed, because yeah. uh, we believe that if, if we invest in research, our patients in Ireland get access to the best drugs early, to get access to clinical trials, but they also get access to the best doctors, because doctors and, uh, and oncologists want to do both clinical work and they want to do research, and we want to bring them from the US and from the UK into Ireland, so the best doctors in the world are available to treat Irish cancer patients. Now, Ivan Cooper, the point is made about multiplicity and like the 39 homeless charities, but you see it everywhere. For example, suicide <coughs> prevention. I know the HSE uh, was involved last year in persuading, well, I don't want to say persuading, but one suicide prevention organisation shut down and publicly said, we're shutting down because there are too many of us and we're not doing a great job and this work could be done better by somebody else. Should other charities and non-profit organisations be admitting that to themselves too? Well, there's always an obligation on charitable organisations. Remember, all char- charities don't own the funds they've raised. They're custodians of the funds. We call the people who control charities trustees. There's about 50,000 of them in Ireland, OK? If you're controlling funds that don't belong to you, you have an obligation to make sure those funds are applied in the most efficient and effective way possible. So there's an onus on charities to make sure that the first thing they do, if they're looking to offer or in or design a new service or, or play a role, is to look around and see are there other organisations out that they can collaborate with. Collaboration should be the watchword. Okay. But I've found, though, in the past, like if I've written or said, so X charity is not doing a good job, you're killed then. Oh, but these people mean well, they're doing a good job. Yeah. You know, you can't criticise. Sarah, you know, the question is that there are too many charities. So just let's address that one straight on. The, the, the question is, well, it, what's the real question behind that question? The, the real question is, why do we have so many charities? To say, are there too many charities or there are too many charities, as we often hear. The real question is, can we, can we try to understand that? Why do we have so many charities? And when we understand the question that way, that causes us to confront the reason for them. And the reason we have so many charities is because of the way we do and have historically done public, social, health, community, education services in Ireland. So when we come at it from the perspective of the statement, oh, there are too many charities in Ireland, that seems to me to almost blame people and communities for coming together to try and address a problem because there's a problem they're trying to... People don't just wake up in the morning and say, oh, hey, I'm going to set up a charity this morning because I've nothing better to do. People who do that are motivated people who are trying to address a challenge in their own lives. So so that's all of that said, coming back to where I started earlier on, when we ask that question then, why do we have so many charities? I believe it's because, once again, of the insufficiently strategic approach that we have generally taken in Ireland to designing social health and community services. And I'll just finish the point by saying (coughs) that there are good indications that that is beginning to change now. We have uh, uh, strategic national strategy development processes in place and commissioning processes in place in uh, the HSE and in Tusla. Those processes, 
signals, strong signals have been sent that they're going to be advanced in a collaborative way with the organisations that are involved currently in providing services, part funded by the state and often under contracts. We heard the Section 38, Section 39 contracts for services between the HSE and TUSLA and these organisations. If we can approach it collaboratively, we believe we can have the social and health and community services that, that people that people should have access to by right, I would say. Now, Colin yeah. Burke, the population is ageing and yeah. cancer is a disease of the aged. So this problem is just going to get worse. Yeah, I think one of the, there are two points I just want to make. One is, I think, one of the reasons for the rise in the number of charities as well is that the system, the state, and particular the health services, is very slow to respond to the need for change. And as a result, people feel that they need to go out and create an organisation and initially not intending to have it grow into the organisation that it subsequently becomes. Uh, and that has been one of the problems. And one of the things that I found over the last four and a half years in the Shannon is identifying a problem and then finding three years later there's still no change. And it's a huge problem that we have within the system here and that we have within the health service. I've met GPs, I've met medical consultants who've come forward with very good ideas about how to save money. And you go to the HSE and you still find the reluctance to change. The second issue that I want to raise is about the demographic change that's going to occur. We have about 600,000 people over 65 at the moment. If you take the number of hospital beds that we have, 51% of those hospital beds are occupied by people over 65. And we are now going to have a huge demographic change between now and 2030 and 2040 in that that number over 65 is going to grow to around 990,000. If you take those figures, and I was at an IMO meeting the other night where that issue was explained very well by a GP, where if you take the numbers uh, uh, of 990,000 over 65 by 2030, that means that all the hospital beds will have to be occupied, will be occupied by people over 65. And unless we change the way we're providing health services and how we're providing support services. We have to provide more and more services outside of the hospital system and we're not doing enough long-term planning in that area and I think it's an issue that we're going to have to face into no matter who's in government in the next five years. A lot of planning has to be done and a lot of work has to be done with the organisations that are providing services, how we can keep more and more people at home, how we can provide more and more services at home and how we can provide more and more services at local level, um, whether it's primary care, whether it's GP. And I, I think right. we need to really do a lot of work in that area. OK, a couple of quick <coughs> tests before I go to Cormac Lucy. While having 39 homeless charities might be well-intentioned, such duplication is not an efficient use of resources. We donated money to the Cancer Society after our wedding. How much of that went to cancer patients and how much went to salaries, maintenance of the HQ, etc.? And I think that's all on the ICS uh, side. 70, 72 yeah. cents per per euro goes to direct services for conservation. Sarah, and if I could just jump in and to that efficient word, yeah. one of the big issues we have is we should be asking our charities, yes, whether they're efficient is important, but the key question is, are they effective? That's the question. Do they do the work that needs to be done and do it well? And then the question is, could it be more effectively done by more integrated yes. organisations or perhaps by the state providing the services to themselves and what would be lost if the state were to do that in terms of effectiveness. Barry in Dublin says the health service costs €4,000 a year for every man, woman and child in Ireland. Can you honestly say we get good value? Well you see yeah that's the problem defining that and finally yeah. the distribution of hospitals was driven by the Irish sweepstakes which led to an inefficient health system. I'd forgotten about the sweepstakes but that's where this philosophy came of people privately raising money. So Cormac Lucy I, you know I guess 
if it's kind of communism on one end and the Tea Party on the other, you know, and cradle to grave, what do we expect the state to do? Um, where are you coming down? Well, I think we've, we've got a... I think we have an inflation of expectations of what the government can and should deliver. And we have got a state that approached the edge of bankruptcy in the last decade and is over the edge of bankruptcy if we were to look at uh, pension liabilities. So we're talking about the implications of ageing on the health system. The implications on our pension funding are even more horrendous. And yet in this election, we've got the Labour Party basically coming out saying that they will provide after school care for children. They've identified a need the state isn't providing and they want to further inflate the scope of state activity. And I think this is not sustainable. And I think the state needs to focus on those services that are really essential. And health and education and security are really essential. Uh, Propping up sports clubs and cultural activities are not. And uh, I would rather see a reduction in that and, and a focus on the real essentials. Thank you. Cormac Lucy, Donald Buggy, Ivan Cooper and Senator Colin Burke on the line. Many thanks for joining me today. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.